Welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie, and this is episode 369, Move or You Will Be Moved, part four. This show is ad-free due to member support, and as a way of thanking members for keeping the show independent, I offer members-only content, including extra episodes and rough transcripts, and you can get instant access to all the members' extras by signing up for membership at thebritishhistorypodcast.com for about the price of a latte per month. And thank you very much to David, Tom, and Neil for signing up already. Edward must have been sitting on pins and needles. When you come at the king, you best not miss. And the Godwins had the King of France and the Holy Roman Emperor acting as their surrogates, while they were off constructing no less than two separate invasion fleets off of two separate English coasts. Which means that Edward was probably realizing that he went at the real king and missed. So, Edward put England on medieval DEFCON 1. The king, increasingly desperate, had mobilized both Somerset and Devon in hopes of protecting the southwest coast from whatever Harold was likely cooking up with all his new friends from Dublin. To counter the threat coming from the east, King Edward placed the royal fleet of about 40 ships at Sandwich under the command of Earls Ralph and Ada, and he knew that both of these men had a personal interest in keeping the Godwins out of England, given that they now owned some of their former lands. And then, once the earls arrived and took command of the fleet, they just sat and waited for whatever Godwin was cooking up with all of his new friends from Bruges. And as for what the crown was doing about Swain, well, I don't think they were too concerned about Swain, because he was walking to Jerusalem barefoot. But with the royal fleet in position and the western fjord on high alert, now all King Edward and his supporters could do is wait and see what would happen next. But the Godwins didn't leave them hanging for long. On June 22nd of 1052, Godwin and his mercenary pirate fleet entered the English Channel, and they began making their way south, headed straight for the royal fleet at Sandwich. It wouldn't have been long before Ralph and Otta, along with their 40 ships, would have spotted the incoming invasion force. And then, nothing happened. The royal fleet stayed in position and just watched as Godwin's ships continued south, past Sandwich, and landed at the tip of Kent at Dungeness, completely unopposed. And I'm pretty sure that whatever Edward had in mind, this wasn't it. And then it got worse. When Godwin made landfall, we're told that the locals gave him a warm welcome. Shit. Shit, 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 shit. And we aren't told why Ralph and Otta allowed Godwin's fleet to row right past them and land without a single fight. I mean, perhaps they weren't as loyal as the king believed they were. Or perhaps their crews were refusing to fight against an incredibly popular English earl on behalf of this much less popular English king. Perhaps Ralph and Otta just weren't cut out for command. There are all kinds of reasons why this might have failed. And unfortunately, the scribes don't tell us which one it was. But... Despite their earlier reticence, the royal fleet eventually did muster some courage and give chase. Kind of. But they did make sure to give Godwin plenty of time to board his ships and head further along the coast of England, towards Pevensey Bay in Sussex. And so, with the royal fleet sort of in chase, Godwin and his invasion fleet was in the wind once again. But as they sailed, those gentle breezes that had been carrying them along the coast began to pick up. 
and the skies darkened. And suddenly, Godwin's fleet was being battered by a mighty gale. And even though his ships were crewed by experienced sailors who would have known the channel and its capricious nature, they were still sailing vessels. And as such, they were ultimately at the mercy of the weather. And today, the weather had no mercy. So Godwin and his fleet were hurled into the channel. They were probably relieved that they hadn't been thrown against the rocky shore instead. It was a narrow escape. And rather than pressing on, Godwin decided to take the hint and retreat back to Bruges to reassess his plans. But Godwin and his mercenaries weren't the only ones at sea when that storm hit. The royal fleet had also been swept up in it, and they suffered just as badly as the invaders, possibly worse. And once the storm passed, the king's navy found themselves adrift in the channel, and they were only able to limp their way back into the Thames, sail up to London, and once there a good portion of the fleet was decommissioned. Now, historian Frank Barlow describes the scene at London as being one of massive confusion. And I can understand why. The idea of decommissioning the royal fleet while the threat of invasion still hung in the air would have been a bewildering task to carry out and also just to witness. But actually, this might not have been so confused. There may have been a sound strategy behind this. The crown had just gone all in against the Godwins, only to watch them escape. That was bad enough, but the events of June of 1052 were making it all too clear that the crown had seriously overestimated their position. I mean, Godwin had just sailed right past the royal fleet, which was apparently so reluctant to engage that they just watched as he rolled by. And then, once he was on English shores, he was welcomed by the English even though he was an outlaw and accompanied by foreign pirates. And once the king's fleet finally mustered the motivation to make a half-assed pursuit, things somehow even got worse. So staring this barely avoided catastrophe in the face, Edward may have felt like a land-based defense, and not the English wooden wall would have been a better or at least safer path forward. And that could have been what led him to decommission the ships. But even with a strategy behind this, none of what was happening here was good news for the crown. Making matters worse, Godwin was out there conducting a PR blitz, casting himself as a conciliatory seeker of peace. You know, just a man seeking a fair hearing before the king. And here, on his first trip across the channel to do that, King Edward responded by sending the royal fleet after him. I doubt it was all that hard to cast the crown as the aggressor in this situation, and a failed aggressor at that. Now granted, Godwin's June expedition hadn't restored him to power, so it wasn't a success, but in many ways, he had won the round. For one, he learned that he was still popular in the South, and on the other side, King Edward had learned that his English friends were a little more fair-weather than his French ones and they didn't seem all that eager to fight against Godwin. So blood was in the water now. And if the people were splitting from the king, then Godwin could deepen that rift by showing the loyalists that sticking with the king had a cost, and that Edward couldn't, or wouldn't, protect them. So with the voyage of reconciliation over, the Godwins changed their tactics. Earl Godwin once again sailed from Bruges, and headed for the southern coast of England. And at the same time, Harold and Leofwina sailed out of Dublin with a fleet of nine ships headed to the Bristol Channel. 
and once there, they began to ruthlessly raid the boundary between Somerset and Devon. And they were raiding whatever food and supplies they needed as they went. Meaning that peasants, the people who would be you and me in this story, were having all their food stolen and possibly their valuables. They might have even found themselves being captured as slaves. Harold and Leofwina's fleet were unabashed raiders. And when local loyalists assembled to fight against them, their mercenary army didn't give any quarter. In Porlock, they butchered the regional army that had been raised against them. And in the process, they killed more than 30 thanes. So the Godwins weren't just depriving the southern English of their food and provisions that they needed to survive the year. And they weren't just defeating the local firds. They were also wiping the local slate of nobility clean. This was a direct attack on the nobility and their revenue stream. Which meant that in many ways, it was an attack upon the peasants. Because that was the nobility's revenue stream. But everybody watching this would have gotten the hint. Stand with Edward at your peril. After Porlock, Harold and Leofwina continued moving east, ravaging everything in their way. Back on the other coast, Earl Godwin landed at the Isle of Wight, where he and his mercs lit it on fire, stole whatever they wanted, and killed whoever got in the way. And if this doesn't sound very heroic to you, it's because it isn't. Heroes exist very rarely in history, and while this story has been told in a way that makes us sympathize with the Godwins, the fact is that they were 11th century English nobility. This class were not heroes. They were wealthy landowners who kept the peasantry in poverty during peacetime, and then in wartime they'd kill those same peasants to get even with other wealthy landowners. And to be clear, what the Godwins were doing here wasn't emotional terrorism or honor culture. When a noble killed the peasantry and burned the crops of another noble's lands, they were denying the rivals of their income. This was an attack on their wealth. And because the peasants produced that wealth, well, here we are. But then suddenly he stopped. And I don't think he stopped out of pity. It's likely that he just heard his sons were in the kingdom and set out to join them as fast as possible, aiming most likely to combine the whole swashbuckling fleet. But, while Dad was seeking them out, Harold and Leofwina were still pushing east, taking everything that wasn't nailed down. And then there's a note in the Chronicle, and it tells us that a third battlefront suddenly opened up along the border of Wales and England. Quote, At this time, Griffin, the Welsh king, plundered in Herefordshire until they came very nigh to Leminster, and they gathered against him both the landsmen and the Frenchmen from the castle. And there were slain very many good men of the English, and also of the French. End quote. This was King Gruffith ap Llywelyn, the same king who was trying to unite Wales. He was also the same king that Swain Godwinson had allied with in his war against a Highbarth. And you'll probably remember that as Swain's embarrassing bit of treason that he celebrated by kidnapping that poor nun. But what I find fascinating here is that right when the Godwins were trying to force their way back into England, and right as Earl Leofrich of Mercia and King Edward and all their Norman allies were trying to stop them, suddenly we have Swain's old Welsh ally launching a war against Herefordshire, which was Swain's old territory. It was also the same place that Count Eustace had occupied and built a new fort in from which he dominated and abused the local population. 
These were also the same lands that had been recently seized from Swain and given to King Edward's French ally, Earl Ralph. And in this note, the Chronicle tells us that King Griffith wasn't just out there raiding. He launched into a full battle where he managed to kill a bunch of highborn Englishmen and Frenchmen. Now granted, King Griffith might have just noticed that Edward was a little busy in the south and seized the opportunity. But the timing and the scale of the conflict is very interesting. And I think it's quite possible that against all odds, Swain's friendship with Griffith, the same one that had caused so many problems for the Godwins, was now actually paying off. And King Griffith was coming to lend support to their cause. But speaking of Swain, what was he up to? Okay. Well, back in the English court, Edward was in crisis. The southern coastline was on fire. And now he had King Gruffith joining in on the fun and ravaging Herefordshire. Something had to be done to stop the incursions into English lands. The kingdom and its people needed the protection of the king. So King Edward sprung into action. And he fled to London. The king locked himself behind the city walls and just hoped that they would keep him safe. Just as his father had done decades earlier. And once safely hidden behind the people of London, he ordered the Royal Navy to assemble on the Thames, just upstream of London Bridge, and hold the waterway. We're told that they assembled a fleet of about 50 ships, which I'm guessing must have been many of the same ships that were in the middle of being decommissioned after the first failed invasion. And this actually was a pretty smart move. Creating a choke point at London Bridge would have made a significant barrier to any naval force that were hoping to force their way up the Thames. What wasn't such a smart move was when Edward placed Otta and Ralph back in command of the fleet. Presumably, Edward was still hoping that their desire to retain lands and titles would motivate them to fight against Godwin, even though that had already failed once. Next, Edward sent messengers all throughout the kingdom, asking any who remained loyal to the crown to raise their forces and come to London in his defense. Then, he waited. And probably in late August, at Portland and Dorset, Godwin finally found his sons. And the two mercenary fleets became one. And at last, the House of Godwin was united once again. Here's how the Vida describes it. Quote, With great joy, the father and brothers looked on each other again and marveled at each other's labors and dangers, now at an end. The sea was covered with ships. The sky glittered with the press of weapons. And so at length, with the soldiers made more resolute by mutual exhortation, they crossed the Kentish Sea, as it is called, and with the ships astern in long line, entered the mouth of the River Thames. End quote. Yeah, you heard that right. With the fleets combined, the House of Godwin were now planning to get right to the heart of the matter, and they were headed for London. The sources also tell us that the fleets stopped their ravaging after joining up together. Though we are also told that they demanded provisions for the nearby towns, which meant they continued taking the peasants' food and supplies, but apparently refrained from killing them outright or burning their houses. So that's nice, I guess. But I don't think that this was due to a change of heart or a sudden sympathy with the peasants. I think it was strategic. Godwin had been popular in the South for decades, and the Southerners didn't appear to be all that thrilled with King Edward and his French friends. But if they continued raiding, 
that might reverse those opinions. Furthermore, the ravaging had already served its purpose. Godwin had demonstrated the danger of opposing him, and he delegitimized the crown by making the king and his military look weak. So halting the raiding made a lot of sense. And besides, at this point in their campaign, what Godwin needed was fighters, not stuff. And it just so happens that at the same point, we're told, the Godwins began to encourage locals and especially sailors to join them in their effort to save the king from wicked and manipulative figures in court. And that should raise an eyebrow at this point. Because first of all, how free do you think these locals felt to make their own choices when an entire pirate's fleet was telling them that they really, really wanted them to join their cause? And second, do you really think the House of Godwin and their pirates were really out to save the king? But, as dodgy as it all sounds, this rhetorical fig leaf probably made a difference, and it made Godwin's new join-us-or-die sales pitch pretty effective. Because it wasn't long before Romney, Hythe, Folkestone, Dover, and Sandwich all provided ships and men for Godwin's cause. Then other towns began to offer up their furds in service. And by the time that Godwin was sailing up the Thames, the Earl turned pirate was leading an armada. And he was accompanied by multiple land-based forces that were marching through the south and likely gathering even more supporters as they made their way to London. What began as a moderate raiding fleet had now turned into a massive land and sea invasion force. And along their journey, a portion of Godwin's military broke off from the main forces and they headed into the Medway, ravaging their way up the river before finally reaching their ultimate target, King Edward's properties at Milton Regis, which they burned to the ground. And this direct attack on the king's wealth is one of the many reasons why I don't think that anyone truly believed that this was purely the fault of the king's Norman counselors. And actually, Barlow posits that this breakaway fleet might have actually been heralded in his ships. And considering that that group had developed into serious raiders during their campaign, while Godwin had only struck the Isle of Wight, that does seem possible. Though, at this point, with the number of people who were joining Godwin's cause and the anger that people were apparently feeling towards the king, or at least the king's council, I think it really could have been anyone. King Edward had miscalculated. Catastrophically. And he was now facing nothing less than a popular uprising that was being led by and supported by an international group of aristocrats, which was exactly the kind of thing that can destroy a regime and leave a king dead. This was bad. And on September 14th of 1052, with the king's estate at Milton Regis burning behind them, Godwin reached his estate at Southwark. Well, what used to be his estate at Southwark, before, you know, the king and his friends nicked it. But now he was back. He was also leading a massive combined fleet that included ships from Flanders, Dublin, and all along the southern coast of England. Moreover, he also commanded the loyalty of two large armies that were now marching along both sides of the Thames. But, despite his improved position, London Bridge still was going to be a problem. Even getting past the bridge itself would be an issue for the fleet, unless the Londoners decided to allow them safe passage. And then there was the fact that right behind the bridge was the royal fleet of about 50 ships. 
and due to the nature of the crossing and the strength of this defense, a direct engagement would guarantee heavy losses for everyone. So Godwin did what he was best at. He met with the Londoners and sought a compromise. We aren't given details of what they talked about, but in the end, the Londoners who held the bridge agreed to give Godwin safe passage. And so, on the tide, the Grand Fleet moved past the blockade along the southern bank, closest to Southwark. And once again, as this happened, Earls Ralph and Otta, along with the Royal Fleet, just watched. Though, to be fair to them in this instance, what else could they do? I mean, really, as soon as Godwin's fleet got past London Bridge, the Royal Fleet was surrounded. Godwin's land forces were on the Middlesex Bank, and as such, they were in position to threaten the fleet from the north. And now, Godwin's naval forces were threatening them from the south. Ralph and Otto were trapped. But even now, Godwin sought peace. So he sent messengers to the king, pleading for reconciliation. With a few requirements this time. You see, he didn't just want to be friends with his son-in-law. Now he wanted his stuff back. And also his kids' stuff back. And, you know, anything else the king and his friends might have taken while they were away. And considering that the Godwins now had the king completely surrounded, that was still a pretty reasonable demand. And to convey this message, Godwin sent his old ally, Bishop Stigand. The same bishop that King Edward made cry back when Godwin was suing for peace the first time. And, just like last time, the king refused. If Godwin came dressed for a fight, well then we should just go ahead and fight. And it's this moment in particular that really should cast doubt on the story that's given to us by the Vita Edwardi. See, the Vita tells us that it wasn't Edward who was spoiling for war. No, all of this conflict was purely the fault of Robert of Jumiege and his allies, not Edward. And I'm not saying that Robert was innocent here. He definitely wasn't. But Edward had been there for every step of this conflict. And at every single one of those steps, he refused reconciliation. It seems to me that Edward wanted to fight just as much as his hand-picked Norman Archbishop did. And to be fair, even though Godwin was suing for peace, not everyone on Godwin's side was interested in reconciliation either. We're told that there were some figures in his camp who were directly spoiling for war. And considering how Harold and Leofwina had been carrying out the fight so far, I think it's a safe bet that we know who at least two of the pro-war factions were. But Godwin was the head of this family, he was the head of this campaign, and so it was his call. And he wanted peace. So when he received word that the king wanted war, Godwin amended his demands. Maybe the king just needed more assurance for peace. So he said that to provide that, they could exchange hostages. And this was a huge concession on Godwin's part. I mean, the last time this happened, Godwin handed over his family members and the king's response was to be so awful that Bishop Stigand cried. So Godwin making this offer was making a huge leap of faith here. And Stigand, probably with a few extra hankies in his pocket, crossed into the city of London and conveyed the offer to Edward. And the persistent, unrelenting reasonableness of this man seems to have finally tipped the balance of opinion in court. Earls Leofrich and Seward, who were the military backbone of the king's loyalists, were already reluctant to fight a civil war. And when this message was delivered, 
and it became clear that Godwin really was doing all he could to resolve this matter peacefully, Edward's supporting court collapsed. If King Edward wanted to fight Godwin, he'd have to do it with his French friends, because the earls were backing away. And when that happened, it dawned on those French friends just how dangerous their situation had become. It was one thing to support Edward as the English fought amongst themselves, but it was another thing entirely to be fighting alone on behalf of King Edward against the Southern English, the Dublin Vikinger fleets, the Flemish pirate fleet, and whoever else Godwin had gathered to their cause. Maybe Edward couldn't see it, but the Normans could. This was done. So Archbishop Robert of Jumiège, the Norman prelates, Bishop Ulf, William of London, and the French soldiers that they brought with them began to hatch a plan. And as the crown was distracted by the threat that was building on the Thames, the French aristocrats and their soldiers fled London and returned to Normandy. But they didn't go alone. Do you remember how in the previous year the king had demanded that Godwin and Swain provide hostages and they gave the king their sons, Wolfnoff, Godwinson, and Hakon Swainson? Well, Edmer tells us that when Archbishop Robert fled England, he took Wolfnoth and Hakon with him. A short time later, he transferred them to his old ally, a guy who would have benefited a great deal if Robert got his way and England devolved into a bloody civil war, Duke William the Bastard. Afterwards, Robert returned to his old monastery at Jumiège, and once there, he almost certainly influenced the chronicle that was being written by William of Jumiège which just happens to be the primary source of that claim that Edward bequeathed England to William the Bastard. It kind of feels like someone had a plan here. I'm the bad guy. Duh. But with the Normans headed back over the channel, Edward was now truly alone. He was out of options. He had to come to terms. So the king declared that outside of the city walls, he would convene a great council which would take place at his palace at Westminster. And there, they would resolve this matter. And this choice of location actually reveals how politically weak King Edward had become. It was only a year earlier where he was basically daring Godwin to come into the city of London and see what happens next. And now, he was leaving the safety of his walls and his human shield to find some sort of accord with the Godwins. And we're told that all of the great earls and leading men of England arrived at Westminster, and they awaited the earl and his men. And it wasn't long before Godwin and Harold arrived at the entrance of the palace, in full body armor and armed to the teeth. Presumably, they were also accompanied by a sizable number of their army. Upon hearing of the arrival of the earl, King Edward came to the entrance of his palace to welcome his guest. Not because he wanted to, of course, but because that was what tradition demanded. This had gotten so bad that the king was forced to truly adhere to English cultural norms. But he was facing off with Godwin, and English honor culture was Godwin's bread and butter. This was his game. So when the king arrived and showed proper courtesy, Godwin one-upped him. He threw his weapons to the ground and threw himself at the king's feet, pleading for mercy. He told the king that he was innocent of everything he'd been accused of, and he was prepared to prove it, and he wanted nothing more than for things to go back to the way they were. Once again, Godwin, who'd arrived at the head of a pirate fleet and who had come to the palace dressed for war, 
was presenting himself as an innocent man who wanted nothing more than peace. It was a brilliant stroke of political genius. Culturally, Edward had been backed into a corner. He had no choice but to lift Godwin to his feet, return his weapons, and lead him and Harold inside the palace. And once the Earl and his son were before the Witan, they argued the case for their innocence. And as you might imagine, King Edward wasn't thrilled about what he heard. However, we're told that on the advice of the Witan, the king gave Godwin the kiss of peace, forgave him of all wrongs, and restored him and his family to full status in court, which included the return of all their lands, all their titles, and all their possessions. The king also forgave and pardoned all the members of Godwin's fleet and his army. But there was still one more matter to be dealt with. Queen Edith, Godwin's daughter. She had been done dirty, and the Earl hadn't forgotten that. So as part of the agreement, Edward summoned her from the nunnery that he'd imprisoned her in, and then he ceremoniously restored her possessions and returned her to the royal bedchamber, which Edith was probably less than thrilled about, but it was probably nice to have her stuff back, as well as being able to see her friends and family, and if we know anything about Edith, it was that she was a deaf diplomat, so she likely made it work. Meanwhile, Archbishop Robert and the various Norman members of court were declared outlaws. Though, I'm not sure how much that really mattered, since they'd already fled the country and were back in Normandy with Godwin's family members as hostages. However, with Archbishop Robert gone and outlawed, that left an important seat open. And the staunch Godwin ally and old softy, Bishop Stigand, was appointed as the new Archbishop of Canterbury, the most powerful religious post in England. Godwin's restoration and the reversal of fortunes that took place here were dramatic. The Vita was so impressed by it all, in fact, that the scribes ended up writing a poem where they compared him to King David. And actually, the subtext here is significant. There's the obvious comparison here, right? David repeatedly sought peace rather than retribution, even though King Saul, who feared his rising popularity and power, kept trying to kill him. And David was even forced to go on the lamb for a while just to survive. And the whole time he was doing that, he was still trying to reconcile with Saul. So that's a pretty easy comparison to make. But there's actually a second aspect to using King David as a metaphor for what happened here. In the Bible, King David established a new royal dynasty. And for a medieval audience who would have been familiar with this story, the scribes weren't being subtle with what they were saying. And for good reason, right? Looking at the way this conflict between Edward and Godwin was carried out, and also how it ended, it seems quite clear to me that this wasn't just some conflict in court. This was a civil war. It was a cold civil war, provided you weren't a peasant, but it was still a civil war. And now that the Witan had forced Edward to outlaw his Norman supporters and restore the House of Godwin... And King Edward, for his part, responded to this thorough political defeat by retreating into himself and focusing on smaller matters, matters he presumably thought he could have more control over, like rebuilding Westminster Abbey. Well, if I were a scribe, and I was looking at a childless king who just threw everything he had at the House of Godwin and failed, well, I'd probably feel like I was looking at the next royal dynasty. I get the sense that everyone could see which way the wind was blowing. And with the Godwins restored and the Normans cast out, nearly everything was resolved. Nearly. 
there was still one child of Godwin we haven't heard from. A son who, against all odds, had actually pulled it out for his family in their hour of greatest need. I mean, he had the foresight to have a getaway ship, saving his brothers from slaughter. Then his friend King Gruffith had come to the family's aid and forced Edward to fight a war on three fronts. And finally, his spiritual pilgrimage had demonstrated the depth of the good and religious intentions of the House of Godwin. Swain's arc here has been remarkable. And almost at exactly the same time as this council took place, where the power of the Godwins was restored, literally days apart actually, Swain Godwinson was making the journey back to England. He'd completed his pilgrimage to Jerusalem. He'd been cleansed in holy fire. And now he was returning to the West in hopes that everything else had gone well. Because don't forget, news takes a long time to travel. And so he wouldn't have known what was happening in court. But he was taking a leap of faith and heading home. And according to the Chronicle, he had reached Constantinople. And on September 29th of 1052 he died. And that's all the scribes of the Chronicles say. About a century later, William of Malmesbury jumps in and adds a few spicy details. He says that Swain was murdered by Muslims in the Holy Land, which, for the medieval mind, would have meant that Swain went from nun-napping kinslayer to pious pilgrim to holy martyr. Writing at about the same time, John of Worcester takes another spin on it, telling us that Swain got out of the Holy Land but only made it to Lycia, where he fell victim to the cold weather and died of illness. Ultimately, we may never know how Swain passed. Did he die a martyr's death? Did he get mixed up in a knife fight in a tavern? Was this all just the natural result of traveling through Anatolia barefoot? We will probably never know. But I think one thing we can be certain of was that Swain probably left this world the same way that he lived in it. Oh, make me over. I'm all I wanna be. Thanks for listening. I walk and study. In